Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Already a very busy Monday. Let's dig straight into uh, today's Q&A. This is with Taya. Taya had a great foundational question. Uh, she was having difficulty visualizing the anterior orientation in a narrow ISA individual. This gives us an opportunity to review a little bit about narrow ISAs. And so we're starting with the narrow ISA archetype. So this is going to be somebody that has an axial skeleton that is biased towards an inhalation representation. Um, under these circumstances then, to create the exhalation, we have to close the ISA and then move the diaphragm into an exhale representation. So this is a compensatory exhalation against the inhalation representation in the axial skeleton. In doing so, we create an expansive strategy in the anterior aspect of the axial skeleton. This is gonna shift the center of gravity forward. And then what we're gonna see then is the first superficial compensatory strategy layered on top of this, which is gonna compress anteriorly. So this is where we're gonna see a down pump handle and we're gonna see compression on the pubis. So this is how we initiated our discussion uh, with Taya to show her how this anterior orientation exists. Then we have the other superficial compressive strategies that get layered on and now we have an anterior orientation that is created under those circumstances. So Taya, great question. Uh, we do show the representation in the video. It's a very short video today, um, which will save you a lot of time, but it's a very important video for a lot of people. So again, thank you, Taya. Uh, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I'll see you tomorrow. Hi, Bill. Greetings. Um, I just, first, I just wanted to ask you, because I have a hard time just visualizing when you have an interior rotation in an arrow, what drives An anterior orientation in an arrow yeah just the the sequence that drives the pelvis into this i'm just yep. figuring out that since the an arrow starts with anterior compression yeah and it's also happening at the pubis if that yeah. is pulling the pubis down and everything starts rolling or is there oh i got you okay. can, can we do a demonstration yeah Okay, that would be take, lovely. take your fingertips, take, take your fingertips and put them on your sternum. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I want you to do is I want you to push your sternum in. Okay. And then I want you to squeeze your shoulder blades together, but don't let your sternum pop back out. Did you feel yourself go forward? Mm -hmm. There you go. Now do the same thing at the pelvis. You don't have to actually do it. Yeah but you're going to get the same you're going to get the same representation at the, at the pelvis it's a little just, bit easier to see in the thorax because it's bigger i'm just figuring out that this is more pushing i'm just imagining that this is pushing me more forward not orienting me over so if i push there mm -hmm. you see where i'm at okay here's the axis of rotation right there if I push that in. Okay, okay, I get it. And I push this forward. Mm -hmm. You see it? So I'm yeah. going to grab right there and right there. And I'm going to push them. See it? Mm -hmm. Does that give you a visual? Yeah. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and...
it is. Perfect. All right. Digging into a very busy Tuesday. We're going to go straight into today's Q&A. Um, this is actually a part two uh, with Taya. So Taya had a question uh, for yesterday. This is another one that came off of the last uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call. And um, her question was in regards to comparing the, the two archetypes to the narrow ISA individual and the wide ISA individual. And for those that might be pushed all the way into a very late propulsive strategy, are we going to start to see some similarities? And yes, we will in regards to some of the muscle activity. But the reason that, that this is a valuable question is because we now start to see the difference between the archetypes in regards to starting conditions, the tendencies we should expect, and then how we're going to try to intervene under certain circumstances. So we're going to talk about foot position. We're going to talk about how to set up a split squat and what those differences may actually be. And so again, a very valuable question for a lot of people. So thank you, Taya, for this question. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Make sure that you go to the YouTube channel and subscribe there so you get all these videos, and we will see you tomorrow. And I just had another question. Um, when you have an endgame wide representation, I, if I know correctly, when the inferior glute max uh, starts to bend the apex of the sacrum under, yeah. um, I'm just wondering if this is similar to butt squeezing or not, and you should be careful with the exercise selection or like in a narrow, yeah. or, or is it a different type of inferior glute max activity. Uh, it's not a different type. It's just the it's just a different starting condition, mm -hmm. right? So if I started with a with a nutated, so if, if this is the base of the sacrum, if I started there and I do that, so so I didn't move this representation. Mm -hmm. I just bent the other mm -hmm. part under, right? Okay, so that's the end position there. Okay, if I started here and then I did that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't look the same, right? But mm -hmm. the muscle activity, because I'm trying to compress the same space, the muscle activity, the strategy would be the same, but because the starting conditions are different, okay, the end appearance will look different. But if it's the same strategy, I have to take the same precaution against reinforcing it. So if, I, if I'm a wide and I have posterior lower compression or I'm a narrow and I have posterior lower compression, it's highly likely I'm gonna to try to do the same thing at the end. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't, I don't wanna close those spaces, okay? Because they both create interference. I'm gonna move my wide, I'm gonna to try to move my wide back towards a middle representation, okay? Because mm -hmm. that's where their bias would be. I'm gonna take my narrow and try to move them back to an early representation because that's where their bias would be. So in this sense, what you said, when you have a wide and you would try to take, uh, bring them back, would you, if I refer to the foot position, would you keep it more in the medial 
propulsion more than not not in such a negative tibial angle as you would keep an arrow so by their structure they're not going to let you go all the way back like a narrow would anyway mm -hmm. so if you try to capture an early representation of a foot on a on a wide isa individual what you're going to see is the foot position relative to the hip is going to be a little different. Like the amount of knee bend to capture that early representation of the foot is not going to be as far away from the hip as say a narrow would be. Because the tibial position, they don't have as much tibial excursion as a narrow does. Because the ER representations are early and late, they're going to be biased more towards middle. Um, hang on, hang on, let me get my foot. Middle foot, cool with that? Actually, let's do this. Let's flatten it out a little. Middle foot, okay. ER, early, ER, late. So the tibia moves back, right? Mm -hmm. So when I set up somebody's foot on the, on the surface, and if I'm trying to get an earlier representation, which is to create, so they're all pushed forward, I'm moving them back on, on the earlier, uh, or on, sorry, on the narrow representation, my early foot is going to have more tibial angle backwards. So the foot is going to be farther away from the pelvis as I set them up. Like if I'm doing like a hook lying activity or something like that, they're going to be able to represent a better early representation that is, that is more ER'd. So the foot is actually farther from the pelvis on the surface if they're laying on their back. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the wide guy, I still need to move him back towards his middle representation. So it's an earlier representation. It's still going to be in middle P. So his tibia is going to be like that. So his, he, his foot is actually a little bit closer, a little bit closer to his pelvis in that setup. Because he just doesn't have the same tibial excursion. He doesn't have the same degree of external rotation representation. So I just move his foot a little bit closer to his pelvis. Mm -hmm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just wondering what you described that uh, when setting up someone, let's say in a split squat position, yep. their structure is already going to determine the yep. tibial angle. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely it is, for sure. So yep. in an arrow, I would just more play with the width of the stance as opposed to narrow as uh, when they, I would play with how further apart they're in a side to side. Uh, so the, 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 the width of their pelvis is going to help you determine that, mm -hmm. right? So, okay. so, so yeah. The, the, again, you, you've got a nice little guide there. So as the, as the pelvis is orienting itself from the ER to IR representation, so wide or narrow, they go ER to IR in a split squat. It's just like to whatever degree that they have that capacity. So, so think about this for a sec. So when you're setting up somebody that's a narrow ISA individual, so let's look at the extreme narrow ISA. And you're gonna put them in a split stance. One of, the, one of the common errors with a split stance with a narrow ISA is they split their feet too far apart, okay? 
because they can, right? So their, 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 their ankle and foot excursion allows them to take a bigger split. And then when they try to lower themselves down into the split, they, they look terrible at the IR representation because they started too far apart. You got to bring them back in a little bit and then they can capture the IR. So you kind of have to, to take away some of their, their tibial excursion when you're setting up the split squat. With the wide people, they tend to not split enough because again, they're force producers, they want to stay in this, this ER. So now you got to coax them out a little bit so they get a better ER representation at the beginning so that their IR representation looks better at the bottom. Okay. So it's just, a, just the, and these are just subtle little tweaks that honestly, you just walk through the gym. You don't even have to know whether they're wide or narrow because you're trying to capture a certain representation as they move through space. You're just eyeballing it anyway. You're going to do the, you're going to make those adjustments. We're just using the representations for clarity. Yeah, I was just thinking when determining the position of the foot, uh -huh. I should help myself with the helical angle. So maybe an arrow has more space front to back while the wide has more from side to side. You are correct. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is. Perfect. All right. Well, today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, 6 a.m. Tomorrow morning, Coffee and Coaches Conference Call, as usual. It's a great Q&A with a great group of people, um, a lot of great practitioners and strength coaches on these calls, um, sharing a lot of great information. So grab a cup of coffee. Please join us, 6 a.m. The uh, link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. All right, digging into today's Q&A. Uh, this is with Manuel, but it's an extension of a discussion that we had in regard to Nivaris and Valgus. Um, that, so Taya, I believe it was Taya that brought up this um, a few calls ago. And uh, what we did is we sort of extended this representation as to why we would see one presentation over the other. And this is in regards to position of the center of gravity and, and actually axial configuration. So actually the shape of the axial skeleton is gonna help determine whether you're gonna see a varus or valgus show up under many circumstances. Then we talk about sequencing is how we would address this in the gym. So those of you that are subscribed to the YouTube channel probably have a little taste of this. Um, when we look at the, the simple solutions for uh, medial knee pain and lateral knee pain that I, that I posted up there, the medial knee pain is going to be more related to the valgus representation. The lateral knee pain is going to be more represented to the varus representation for those of you that are looking for ideas for activities and then again sequencing of events to address these issues. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Hey, Bill. I want to follow up on the discussion. Um, so you mentioned that, um, that the, the valgus and the varus also kind of depends on the force that you're putting into uh into the ground yes sir. so would you say that the that the narrows would be more biased towards that varus uh presentation because they have that more of that er as they are pushed forward anyway compared to a wide who is going to be more ir as get pushed forward it, it, it's going to be all right it's going to be less about a narrow and a wide and it's going to be more about the configuration because of the the downward and upward bias okay okay so so if you take somebody that has a 
a pelvis with a larger circumference than the thorax. The pylons. Okay. Yes, sir. So they have they have a a predominant downward velocity, right? And mm. so you're gonna see you're you're gonna see more of a of a um, what would be referred to in, in valgus. Oh man, that word just gets a little caught in my throat. Uh, no, you, you're you're going to see that the the knees coming inward a lot more under that circumstance. Okay, somebody that would be in a in a more um, the bowed representation, which where you have the superimposition of ER, they're going to be moving upward more because that that requires the the ER bias. Does that make sense? So yeah, remember, IR is down, ER is up. So if, if, if I'm moving up and out, so I'm turning up and out that way, that's going to create more superimposition of external rotation, which is going to allow me to move further forward. Okay. And so then you're going to see the, the bowed appearance. If I'm IR bias, I got to turn down and in. <laughs> so, uh, so, so uh, following that, then the, the flatter cylinder, the shorter cylinders would have more of that IR force going into the ground, they would be more uh, valgus compared to the longer cylinder configurations? Uh, it's more about, like I said, it would be more about the differential between the two. Okay. Okay. Mm. It's gonna, it's gonna, yeah, because uh, again, it, it, because it's an up and down thing more than anything else. Yeah, I was thinking about the flow between the those two. Right, uh, no, I, 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 I know exactly where you're coming from. But but um, that that would be like saying there's no such thing as a bow-legged powerlifter when all you gotta do is go to the powerlifting gym and you would see it, see them all over the place, right? Right. Yeah, but they're slightly biased. Again, one of the reasons why they're probably really good powerlifters is is they got it. Granted, they their their differential is not significant from top to bottom, right? They're they're very thick in in both the thorax and the pelvis but they got just enough differential that that they're going to slide forward more and they're going to er more mm -hmm. you won't you won't find too many i don't know I, I i haven't looked at this in a long time but visually speaking i don't think you're going to find too many too many really good power lifters that are walking around with what would be called a valgus knee no not really i can't think of, I can't think of any off the top of my head anyway no, but I, 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 don't, I don't look at that stuff. But I do see the Varus uh, presentation a lot. Like they walk like the Cowboys, you know, or the Harley yes, Davidson yes. riders. There you go. You know, yes. The thing. So. yes. And then, um, uh, you know, following up with what uh, Zach was talking about, um, with that differential, um, you know, he, how would how would that be reflected in the gym? Like, would the solution still be? It seems it seems kind of which, similar. Which differential are you talking about, boss? Well, uh, in terms of uh, when he was talking about uh, looking at the knee, whether just going after the tibia first or, or the whole thing, uh -huh. uh, based on the how I guess eccentrically oriented the VMO is. It seems yes. like in both cases, you know, you would still want to just, uh, <clears throat> you know, make sure that uh, that you know it, they, they, it's systemic. So you want the hip to be in a good position. You want the right yes, foot view, and then maybe going yeah. to something like a split squat or something. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, so from a training standpoint, which is where I come from more, yeah. it seems like the, the, let's say the treatment, but at least the experimentation would be the same or similar, very similar. 
I don't know if there's a yeah. Something, so there's but you're, to look out the only, for. yeah, the the only different the only difference here is that you're just not going to lay hands on somebody to promote the change. You're going to have to you're going to be really really good with your exercise selection and then understand where you've got access to to movement, right? Mm -hmm. So you know the the places where you're going to have to create some of the the rotations um, is is at 90 degrees of knee bend at the knee, okay. And then when you're trying to approximate the hip, you have to prevent some of the motion at the knee, right? Because you don't want that compensation. So if you had somebody that walked in with like the, uh, you know, okay, so you're working with uh, the rodeos in town and they go, hey, man, well, we want to get a lift in. And um, they come walking in with their high heeled boots on, right? And, and you know, they, you're you're throwing the basketball around and the guy's standing there with his feet close together and you bounce the basketball to him he misses it but it goes between his knees right so he's got the <clears throat> he's got the big bow right so um if you're trying to address the hip first you're gonna have to put the the lower extremity in a position where the knee cannot make the compensation first right mm -hmm. so that's going to be in that's going to be in um exercises where that knee is a little bit straighter Okay, that would emphasize the hip turn, right? You could control the hip more because the knee is in a position where it wouldn't move as much. Mm -hmm. Okay, then once you get the hip under control, now you got to put them in a position where the knee has access to motion and that's where the knee is more bent. Got it. Right? So it seems like in one case, you could do something more like a half kneeling, whereas in the second case, you have something more like a split squat. Uh, I would, I would look at it more from the perspective of like, if, if you were, uh, putting somebody, they were standing and you had them put one foot up on a step, mm -hmm. the downside foot that's still on the ground would have, you would have greater control of the turn of the hip. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You see how, cause, cause the knee is, is almost straight. Mm -hmm. And, and so there would be less rotation available at the knee, but I have a lot of rotation at the hip. So now I'm influencing the foot and the hip in that circumstance. So I set that up. So I do something, some kind of activity there first. Then I go after like the half kneeling split squat, split squat stuff. Okay. Then, then, I, then I have more access to knee. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Okay. So cool. there's a little bit of sequencing that, that comes into play that's helpful. And that doesn't mean you can't knock it out of the park with one exercise, which you can like, you could go right to a split stance activity, Manuel, if you got somebody that's got great control and, and you're, you're the best coach of the day kind of a thing, you can knock it out of the park with one activity, right? You just got to make sure that, that number one, you can see what you need to see and they understand what you want them to do. And then there's other times where, maybe you don't have that level of communication and maybe it's a it's a wednesday instead of a thursday and you come in and you're a little you know you're a little off right and then maybe you need two exercises mm -hmm. got it okay okay yeah that's cool good morning happy thursday i have neural coffee in hand and it is Perfect, man, that is really, this is really good today. All right, so either way on the heels of that, I have a connective tissue question as well. Okay. Uh, so 
I was hoping you could use the example of like a kettlebell drop clean where you just you drop down and catch it at the bottom. Yep. Um, and so I just wanted to talk through like the the muscle versus connective tissue representations as that happens. Yes, sir. So as you're dropping and like the weight's free falling with you, essentially you're not really holding the weight. You're you're yielding and your um your muscles are eccentrically orienting right until the moment that you catch it, at, at which point you immediately become, you stop eccentric orientation and become at, at that spot. The muscles no longer lengthen, but yep. you do get um, connective tissue yielding at that point. Yes, sir. Right? Yes, sir. Um, and if you, if you hold it for a period of time, yep. uh, is that where you start to get some type of like stress relaxation of the connective tissues or does that take longer that takes a lot longer um and, and when i say a lot longer it's it's not just a couple of seconds kind of a thing so you can get i believe oh like a standard kind of a representation when they talk about some of the uh, static exercises is like at least 20 seconds of exposure to start to get like the stress relaxation up to minutes obviously um but but yeah with it within that within the 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 few seconds um what you're gonna get um if and i always think of like a spider web scenario here spider web tap the middle and then the wave goes out in all directions through the spider web right so if you drop catch and hold that's what you're doing to the energy so it's dissipating outward through all of the tissues until it sort of just dies off. It's the, you know, the pebble dropped into the lake where it makes the waves and then the waves disappear kind of thing, right? That would be a dampening effect of, of holding the position. So, so in this situation, um, as you hold it, basically you hit that position, catch the weight and you start to yield. And, and then over the time that you hold it, the water is seeping out of the, the tendon for that period of time, a little bit more as you as you go through like 10 seconds. It, yeah, right? it would, it would, yes, so the connective tissue would have to deform to allow the dissipation of the energy to occur. Yeah. Is that but what you're the, Yeah, but the muscle is staying the same like level of concentric orientation. Okay, okay. So here's what, here's, yes, yes, but, okay. You also have to consider the rate of of the the activity of the muscle itself okay so um are you you're familiar with the concept of rate coding yeah okay so that's a neurologic phenomenon right of of how quickly the muscle behavior takes place and when when you talk about like the off and on of motor units and things like that it's like how many so the concentric orientation right? So the joint position may not change, but the rate at which the muscle behavior takes place will. So if the, if the output slows down, that helps to dampen the, it, so that's what gives the connective tissues its yielding capability and allows it to dissipate the force. So if you were going to catch at the bottom and then try to utilize the elastic energy, that would not happen. The, the rate of the muscle activity would stay very, very high to allow the tissue to recoil. 
You understand? Mm -hmm. So there's yeah. the difference. Okay. So, so you can't confuse, you can't confuse the, the rate behavior of the, of the muscle activity with concentric eccentric orientation, because that's a position. Okay. And this is why we have to have, have those, those physiological representations in, in, in part of this. So you do understand because it would seem like, well, you're always going to try to dissipate the energy under that circumstance. It's like, no, because I have muscle behavior, the intramuscular coordinative uh, elements of it that would produce the tuning, Austin Ulrich, uh, the tuning of the uh, connective tissues. Is this kind of related to like, when you said before that you're you're walking, the leg is swinging, it's about to make contact with the ground, and it's already slowing down. Um, is this basically like the tuning of the muscles from the nervous system that's helping to allow for some type of like connective tissue yielding delay strategy? So this yeah, I mean, it, it, the, yes, because be, and again, keep in mind. So so if you think about like a sequence of events nervous system output, muscle behavior, connective tissue behavior, right? Mm. You know, and, and so, so that whole sequence of events, there's an there's a, a amazing ballet of interplay there. Um, and, and this is why anybody with, with small kids that just learned to start walking, it's like, that's why they suck at walking because they're just trying to figure out, it's like, okay, how do I coordinate all of this stuff all at the same time? And then eventually it becomes our second nature, right? Um, does anybody, anybody play uh, guitar? Anybody? Are you good, Thomas? Speak for a moment. What do you play? What's your, what's your favorite, go what's your go-to, what's your go-to jam when you got to show off a little bit? Oh, like music, like song? Yeah. Yeah, I like some Travis picking stuff, like a freight train, that kind of thing, you know? Okay. Do you think yeah. about it when you're playing? Not in the least. See? There you go. So so it's on a totally different level. And so, so our behaviors start to become like that. And again, that becomes training. That becomes the repetition and, and such. And so the coordination just sort of um, evolves over time. Right. But, but again, you, you have to look at this from an, the interactive standpoint and again, multiple lenses, right? Nervous system output, muscle behavior. What are the options? Okay. Under those circumstances, how would the, then the connective tissues behave? What am I observing in context and then work backwards and go, Oh, okay. So you hit this joint position. So I know that I've got, I got enough eccentric orientation to get into this position. Um, you're kind of, or you ever see the people that dampen too much where they land and then it takes like forever and a day for them to leave the ground after a jump, right? Because again, they're, they're, they're incapable at that moment in time of tuning the connective tissue. So they have to have the intramuscular coordination to tune the connective tissues to allow the favorable response. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. Again, now you go back to physical structure. So now you're working backwards. You go, okay, well, why can't Johnny jump? It's like, oh, Johnny's a pylon. He's going to be a great accountant someday. Right? Gotcha. So in the situation where you hold at the bottom for like, we'll call it 20 seconds and, or 30 yeah. seconds. And you're yeah. just feeling like, hold the position, breathe, try and let go of X muscle. Um, 
what exactly is happening when you're letting go of the muscle? I mean, is it some type is of joint position changing? Yeah. Okay. So if joint position is changing, then you're reducing the number of motor units that are that are producing tension, right? So you, you're basically training this um like neural interplay to the muscle um to be able to gain a joint position. But what what's What's the time element here? Like, why does time help with that? Well, so so you need time to make a change. Okay, is that fair? Like, like, like from the nervous system output to the muscle behavior, there is an element of time. Sure. Um, okay, and then that's some of that's going to be coordinative, so that has to be learned. Um, and so that that time may change. So from an efficiency standpoint, as you get better at that muscle behavior, it will take you less time to accomplish that task. Mm -hmm. Plus, there's a time-related behavior in regards to the connective tissue because keep in mind that, the, um, that there is a fluid content to that connector tissue that, control, that controls elements of that behavior. So I need time for the, the position of that to change. So whether it's held within the connective tissues or is it being squeezed out of the connective tissues takes time. Mm -hmm. So... Okay. So in that situation, there's there's a degree of learning that generally takes place where they literally just have to figure out how to do it. But if if you're someone who kind of demonstrates a lot of overcoming in general, the longer you get down there, the more water that flows out of the connective tissues. Generally, that tends to make the the whole learning process a little bit easier to happen because there's a less there's less of like a threshold you have to get over. Right, but again, that's going to be dependent on the individual as far as their capacity to learn something new, and then what what were their initial parameters in regards to my connected tissue behaviors. You can't make somebody into something that they don't have the potential for. Okay, um, everybody follows the general rules, but everybody's going to have a limit as to what their capabilities are. Which is unfortunate. We all can't be superheroes. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Okay, leading into the holiday weekend, for those of you who celebrate, um, we're going to dig straight into today's QA. This is with Matt. Matt had a great question in regards to. Uh, the progression of a narrow ISA as they move forward through space and what we're going to see. So we're going to see elements of anti-orientation. We're going to see what eventually becomes um, what is often termed a swayback situation. And then how is that constructed and what does it actually represent? It gets misconstrued as a posterior uh, tilting, if you will, of the pelvis, which is probably not accurate, is a forward movement through space. And so we, we talk about um, how we see this progression and measures that you actually may see that will help you recognize the fact that that anterior orientation persists as you move through space. We also have to consider some configuration elements of the axial skeleton itself. And so if we have a pelvis circumference that is larger than the thoracic circumference, we're going to have a much more much more significant downward force, which is going to take the center of gravity down and forward, which is going to predispose people more towards that uh, sway back representation. Um, so that um, was not discussed in this in this discussion, but I wanted to throw that out there for you um, as an element of consideration. Um, 
For those of you who um, are looking for more information in regards to the configuration, please go to the YouTube channel. If you put configuration into the, the search blank there, you're gonna find a couple of videos that are gonna help give you some background on what we mean by configurations and their influence. Everybody have an outstanding uh, holiday weekend. Podcast will be up on Sunday. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, and I'll see you next week. Uh, Mr. Hamilton. Hi, Bill. How are you going? I am doing quite well, thank you. Good. Good. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> hey, I have a, uh, I have a question. Um, in respect to narrow ISAs, and um, you might need to speak to me like I'm a five-year-old because I, I, I think I'm regressing as I get uh, as I get further into this rather than progressing. Um, so we get a narrow ISA, and we can see them uh, present with uh, in their later stages either a sway back or an anterior pelvic uh, uh, tilt, if we want to call it that, um, or orientation. What I'm trying to get through my head is the stages that they go through that lead them down one path or another or an, or the other, and at what point they sort of part ways. If you if you get what I mean, which like I can see at the end at the end of at the end of say a sway back position where we've got that you know rectus abdominis pulling pulling down uh, really hard. The you know also rostral compression pushing them forward up at the back their pump handles down their lower posterior compression so we're seeing these signs but what i'm lost in is is how do they end up in the same starting position and end up in a different ending position at what point does that is the, does the change take place which change are you making reference to my friend so i'm making change in regards to the pelvic orientation like what causes what do we, are you there, Bill? Sorry, I lost I, you for a I'm, second. I'm here, I'm here. Uh, what, what, what causes the uh, pelvic orientation to move anteriorly uh, as opposed to moving into a, a sway back posture? Which of the, because obviously you can't, you're not gonna end up in a position with, uh, you know, uh, that uh, pump handle being, being pumped down, uh, pulled down as significantly in an anteriorly orientated pelvic position because Why not? You know, well i would suggest that you're going in the opposite direction aren't you uh under what circumstance could i possibly um move my pelvis into a posterior orientation and not fall backwards under what circumstance could you not fall backwards yeah so so they're moving forward through space, are they not? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So if I pull the if if I okay, if I reach between your legs and I reach up behind you and I grab the back of your belt. Okay. Yeah. So I'm on I'm in the front and I'm reaching up underneath you. I grab the back of your belt and I pull it down and back. What direction are you gonna go? So you're standing in front of me, pulling from there. I'm, yes, I'm gonna fall, I'm gonna go backwards. You're gonna fall backwards. Yeah. Like I'm not pulling you. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, you're not moving forward under that circumstance. I'm tipping, that's tipping the pelvis backwards, right? So yeah. the pelvis doesn't tilt backwards under that circumstance. You're just sliding more forward. 
right? So the anti-orientation has already taken place. Like as soon as, as soon as you start to get the, the uh, sacrum, the, the base of the sacrum starts to get compressed, as soon as the DR starts to get compressed, you're going forward. That is an anti, you, you are moving into an anti-orientation. Don't let the visual screw you up. It's definitely doing that. <laughs> okay. So so think about think about this for a second, Matt. So if if you had if you had a, a narrow narrow ISA individual that was in a late propulsive uh, strategy, yeah. do you think they would have normal external rotation at the hip? Nah, no. Not anymore. Okay. So so my dead giveaway for anti-orientation is the loss of external rotation at the hip joint. Because yeah. that's what happens when the pelvis anteriorly orients. Does that you understand that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, so there you go. So again, it's like when 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 people see the visual representation of of that that pelvis moving forward in the narrow ISA, they go, "Oh, it's now tilting backwards." It's like, no, I just grabbed, I just kept pushing the the pelvis forward. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because again, it's the visual that throws people off, and then they make then they make the the incorrect assumptions. Because, but this is why this is why. And again, you don't have to do table tests, but you need to understand what they mean, mm. right? When I have the loss of external rotation at the hip, the the, the only way that that's going to happen is I have to move the pelvis into a position that would take that that motion away, right? Which would be pushing it into the anterior orientation. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. this would be like this is your these are your narrow your narrow people that that have to move their legs really really far apart to squat. Yeah. Right. Because the, you, you, they got smushed from the front first. They got smushed from the back second. Right. So would you say that then someone who's ended up in a sway the sway back position is much further further along. As far as uh, their compression's concerned, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, hear for sure. That okay, all right. I'll think on. I'll think on that a bit more and try and figure it out. <laughs> well, it, again, it, it, Matt, just start to look at the start to look at the muscle activity that got you there, right? If you're in a late, if you're in a late representation, in in either circumstance, it doesn't matter who you are you have pressure against the sacral base that is pushing it forward. Yeah. That doesn't stop. That doesn't stop, right? It continues. You just start to add more compensatory strategy on top of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that part of it. I was just having difficulty figuring out, you know, when I see people with those big, <clears throat> you know, those, uh, uh, posterior lumbar com compression and uh, that, that big curve of the spine. And then that kind of, you, you visually look at that and go, oh, well, that's, you know, they're, uh, they're in a, uh, an anteriorly orientated position, but they're a narrow ISA relative to the, the sway back who's going the opposite, appears to be going in the opposite direction, but they're not really, they're just pushed slightly in a different, still pushed forward, but in a, yes, in a different manner, I suppose. Yeah. Well, okay. Again, go back to your starting conditions. 
So you see where they came from. And then yeah. you deconstruct it, right? If they're in a late representation, that sacral base is getting pushed forward, my friend. It's like, you don't yeah. have a choice. You don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. Yeah, or I'll, I'll think on that. Thanks, Bill. Bye, man.